Welcome to the public morality. There are times when books capture the zeitgeist of the moment as they simultaneously make us uncomfortable and hopeful about our lived experience. That was my take as I read Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice, co-written by Mark Lamont Hill and Todd Brewster. We are honored to have one of its co-authors who is no stranger to the public morality, Todd Brewster. Todd has occupied both positions on the broadcast as guest and as host. He is the author of many books, including Lincoln's Gamble, The Tumultuous Six Months That Gave America the Emancipation Proclamation and Changed the Course of the Civil War. Todd Brewster, welcome back to The Public Morality. Well, thank you, Byron. This is my, my, my pleasure. I'm, I look forward to any time I get to talk with you. So um, this is a good day for me. Well, I want to begin by just congratulations on this powerful and prescient text. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. And I want to have you share with our listeners how this collaboration came to fruition. Sure, sure. So um, uh, Mark Lamont Hill, um, uh, a well-known figure, particularly in the uh, Black news world, um, and and I share the same agent. And... um, uh, a few years ago, when Mark was working on a book called Nobody, um, he needed some help and and sorting out his ideas and figuring out how to pace the book and um, uh, even some help with editing and writing. And, and and my our agent, mutual agent George Greenfield, asked if 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 I would meet Mark. And so we met in a in a, a bar hotel in Manhattan, and we got on very well. Um, and uh, it turned out that uh, um, not only did I help him some with the book, but I also wrote the foreword to his book and was uh, honored to do so. Um, and we stayed friends. He's a professor at Temple. I taught at Temple for a year um, as a visiting professor. Uh, um, and, and when all the chaos of 2020 was happening, we checked in with each other. And after um, uh, uh, the killing of George Floyd, which we're marking the two-year anniversary this week, um, uh, we talked about what was not being said about it, what was not being said about the change in the um, story of America, America and race. And um, uh, we, we both felt there was something to be mined, uh, uh, particularly by, by our own talents, about how the role of, uh, of technology and social media and, and, and uh, the cell phone and the cell phone camera were playing in changing the story of race in America. And, and then uh, as we played out the idea, we realized that it was it had a lot of historical roots. It really went all the way back through American history to the 19th century, and and the, in fact, it was um, uh, the use of the camera and the use of, of journalism and the use of of um, of uh, the uh, uh, still images and moving images and the film industry that had animated the story of race in America for our entire existence. And so we came up with this idea for seen and unseen, we're calling it. It's, it's a play off of a James Baldwin title um, and, and um, uh, developed a proposal and ended up um, uh, getting a lot of enthusiasm from publishers. And here we are. Hmm. Well, what, what, I guess uh, the inflection point that you define as the democratization of technology, why is it critical to the current moment? Well, you know, um, uh, the, the uh, world is changing. 
I mean, it's changing uh, uh, faster than it ever has, right, in the past few years. And it's driven by technology. It's driven by the things that we can do and the, and the um, uh, plethora of images that, are, that flood our inbox every day and, and that are in our Twitter feeds, that are on Facebook, that are um, on cable television, that are everywhere. And um, uh, it's changing the way that we communicate. I mean, it's changing the news business. It's changed... Um, uh, it's democratized technology, really. I mean, now we have the story stories that were that uh, of not only the 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 powerful but the powerless as well. People who can tell their story and use images and 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 communicate with people around the globe. Um, this this is what we mean by an inflection point. The, the story has changed. Um, uh, 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 where we're seeing the stories of people that were, were left unseen for um, all of human history, uh, the powerless. Um, we're, we're seeing um, uh, evidence of claims of, um, of, uh, of uh, marginalized communities that, that have, have been saying for, for decades that they suffer um, from the hands of, uh, of police abuse and, and vigilantes. And, um, uh, and now they have more evidence to show us that, that it really has been happening. So it's, it's, a, it's a shift in the power of the, of the picture and the power of the communications tools from those who, were, uh, who, who uh, occupied the, the machinery of power in the past, and now it's much more in the hands of all of us. You know, one of the reasons uh, for uh, the momentum that led to the 1964 Civil Rights Act was the video footage that came out of Birmingham on the nightly news. And though that occurred in what I would, what I would call the pre-democratization period, it nevertheless is one of the many antecedents to the present moment. Your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was just writing an op-ed this morning for um, Oprah Daily, as a matter of fact, um, on this very subject. Uh, there's a famous meeting in, in, in um, May of 1963. Uh, um, uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy, who was at the time the Attorney General, asked James Baldwin if he would gather together a group of, of Black leaders in the arts and in culture uh, to meet with him so that he might understand better the, the uh, problem of race in America. And this was just days after... Uh, the killing of the three girls at that Birmingham, the bombing at the Birmingham church and the, the and the, the riots that were uh, in the streets, the unrest, the protest and the hand, the Bull Connors uh, um, uh, fire hoses that he turned on them. And, and uh, one of those whom he, whom, whom Baldwin brought to the meeting was Lorraine Hansberry, the, the author, the, the dramatist, the uh, playwright who wrote a raisin in the sun. And, the meeting with Bobby Kennedy did not go well. Um, uh, it seemed to everyone there that he was more concerned with um, uh, his uh, brother's reputation than he was with understanding more completely the, the story of race in America. They wanted him to get the president to walk a black girl to school as a symbolic gesture um, in Alabama. And, um, uh, there was a lot of tension in the room. And as Lorraine Hansberry got up to uh, say goodbye to, to uh, Bobby Kennedy, she reached out, she thanked him for his time. And then she said, I'm fearful of a civilization 
that tolerates that photograph I saw of a policeman's foot on a black woman's neck. And then she smiled. And, and as James Baldwin writes, I was glad, he said, that I was not the person she was smiling at. <laughs> it was, um, there was an image, an image of uh, um, a foot on a neck, not a knee on a neck, photojournalism in the hands of a professional, not a bystander with a cell phone. But in many ways, it was the antecedent, as you said. There's another antecedent, Byron, and that is going back to the 19th century. And it is the story of lynching in America. And as you know, uh, and as we go into in some depth in this book, um, lynching was a sport. It was a spectacle. It was uh, something where uh, crowds would gather to watch. They would take away souvenirs. They would shoot pictures. They would shoot pictures of a man being lynched in front of a crowd. And it was Ida B. Wells, great black journalists of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, who stood up for those who were being uh, unfairly accused, did remarkable research into the stories of those who were being lynched to show that they were actually falsely charged. But she also published some of those photographs. And whereas the photographs were mementos to the white supremacists who were part of the, the uh, lynching spectacles, by the time Ida B. Wells gets a hold of them and puts them in a different context, they are something that is greeted with great shame and outrage and leads to the condemnation of lynching and a new understanding of the plight of Black Americans in Reconstruction and the period after Reconstruction and all the era of Jim Crow. So we've been using photographs for a long time to give new, um, a new vivid form to the story of race in America. And um, uh, this period, this inflection point, as you said, is just another chapter in that story, but a very powerful one. And it's worth taking note of. I, I want to raise the question that you raised in the introduction. Mm. What is social media and the ubiquity of video evidence of racism doing to our society? Well, I'd like to say that that it is um, leading to reform and it's leading to a new consciousness uh, with respect to um, uh, people who are suffering. Um, I think it has done that, um, at least a recognition of the suffering. But of course, social media and um, technology, uh, they don't have a, uh, they don't arrive with a moral compass, right? I mean, it's the people who use the social media and the technologies who need to generate um, a sense of, uh, of indignity about some of these stories. I, I do worry about the role of social media in, as a sound piece for um, abusive and racist and um, language and expression. Um, I do worry about uh, how it has encouraged the development and the growth of um, of uh, extremist movements. 
Um, I do think at the same time that like all technologies, it has the power to be a commanding, powerful influence for good in the country, but it's up to us to employ it that way. Uh, to, to follow up on that, doesn't the democratization of technology also mean that those who once had sole ownership, um, there's now uh, an enhanced version of technology. So they also have this technology, an enhanced version, the ones that have sole ownership. So how democratic is it? Well, I, I think it's de democratic in the sense that we are hearing more voices. And we are seeing people put in touch with each other in ways that were not possible. Um, it also is allowing for us to, I mean, we think about uh, when Martin Luther King is one of the great organizers of history, right? I mean, he's, uh, and, and yet um, the tools that he had were primitive by comparison to what we have now. You can, you can get a crowd together to, um, protest something, to demand justice. I mean, a perfect example is Ahmaud Arbery. Um, uh, you know the story well. I'll, I'll repeat it for your listeners that um, in Glynn County, Georgia, he was um, out jogging and, um, um, and, and there were a few self-appointed uh, um, uh, um, sort of security guards. I mean, they weren't literally security guards, but they were just members of the community around the area where he was jogging who took it upon themselves to sort of um, uh, take a kind of security guard role for that community. And um, they went out in their truck and pursued him and cornered him and finally pulled out their guns and shot and killed him. And um, uh, when that happened in February of 2020, it was you know, a few months before uh, George Floyd, we were deep into the pandemic. People were staying at home. There was nobody out. Um, the prosecutor in Glynn County opted not to prosecute um, Travis and Gregory McMichaels and, and Roddy Bryan, their friend, uh, for the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. But through social media, a groundswell of public opinion began to force them to address it. Without that, without social media working as a tool for organizing, for raising the consciousness of what had happened in this case to Ahmaud Arbery, those men were never, would never have been brought to justice. The prosecutor saw them as um, uh, operating on a, on, a, on a, believe it or not, an 1863 uh, uh, statute uh, that uh, dated back to the days after the Emancipation Proclamation and allowed for citizen arrest of someone who thought that they saw a crime being committed, which in effect was a way of justifying uh, the seizing of runaway slaves. Um, and here we were, how many years later? A um, uh, hundred and... 100 and uh, nearly 170 years later and it was being used to justify uh their use of uh their guns on Ahmad Arbery in uh 2020. So I think th th there are advantages to social media here. We just have to realize that 
communications tools are are i mean they're 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 powerful and they need they need to be used um uh with the right respect um and with the right uh notion of their positive effect they can have on community discourse now, now this is certainly an argument that you're putting forth in the text but uh aren't we collectively guilty of falsely bequeathing neutrality to our to our own eyes so i could see something one way you can see something another way so we assume that our eyes are neutral and they're not yeah um well expect byron expand on that a little bit i want to make sure i understand your question sure sure if 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 i see video footage a certain way yeah and i saw it i'm assuming because i saw it the way i saw it that that there's a certain neutrality that i'm giving to that 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 i'm looking at it unbiasedly i'm 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 not i'm not looking at it any other way it's just judicious uh that allows me to make a judicious conclusion that's what i'm saying yes um i understand now and in fact we do get into this in the chapter that's about um kenosha and the violence in kenosha um yes and i think what what's the subtext to what you're saying is that um this uh, uh, two pairs of eyes can see the same piece of film and come away with different conclusions. Am I right? Yes. Yes. And we are, we, we tend to uh, believe that um, a picture is proof when in fact, it may only be proof to the things that we see, not the things that our neighbor sees. Am I right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, it, it's a very interesting notion and it comes back to, I think we've talked about this before in constitutional terms, the, the, um, the uh, notion of, of a free market of speech, right? That, we, uh, that um, the government remains neutral uh, according to the First Amendment on the content of your speech, uh, treats it all equally, right? And yet, um, ultimately depends upon the marketplace for good speech to drive out bad speech. So I would make the uh, an analysis here going off of what I said earlier and going to your question that, yeah, we have a responsibility not only to um, recognize the power of these videos, but to be curators of these videos. In other words, to lay over them a prism that allows us to understand it. It's not bias. It's really um, what it's. A, it's a matter of what values we bring to the video. Do we bring um, respect for the dignity of any human life? You know, do we bring bring um, uh, 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 respect for justice? Do we that is blind to race? Um, those are the kinds of questions. I you know there are certainly nuances in film to take away different conclusions, but one of the st- one of the reasons the George Floyd video is so powerful is that it's really almost impossible, or I should say un- impossible for a moral um, sentient being to look at that video and not see something shameful, criminal in their presence. Yeah, I I, I, um, I tend to agree with that, that jo- George Floyd video is one of those, in my view, where the on the other hand explanation is just hard to swallow for, yeah. for, for the reasons you just raised. Um, 
As you know, I, I hold politics fundamentally as an amoral enterprise, mm-hmm. which is why Americans' commitments to liberty and equality are susceptible to the influence of paradox. You, you know that's one of my yeah. strong arguments. Yes. Could we offer something similar about technology in that democratization uh, does not negate the amoral aspects of it? And it's also susceptible to paradox. Now I'm going to ask you once again to to explain that <laughs> a little more. Mm-hmm. Well, well, technology in and of itself uh, is amoral, so it can go right. any way it wants. Like you you referenced earlier, there there are some um, nefarious uh, uses of technology that that. Um, well, for example. Uh, if you remember back during the um, early stages of the Obama administration, do you remember the spliced uh, video of Shirley Sherrard that made her look like she was making racist comments when she was just uh, saying the exact opposite? So really, the the moral aspects of this, because it is more, more the moral aspects are, are in the hands of those who use the technology, just yeah. like the moral aspects of our democracy are in the hands who who view yeah. it that particular way. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, I would say one of the things that makes the the um, the George Floyd video so powerful is is not contained in the film itself. It's the story of who made the film, right? And uh, it's not was not made by an activist. It was not made by a a political um, uh, party. It was not made by someone who was looking to convince somebody of something. It was a teenage girl on her way to accompany, accompanying her little, um, I think it was her sister, to cup foods that day uh, because her sister was too small to to go there by herself so she could get some snacks and she's walking past the scene and sees it and raises up her phone to 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 record it now if um that had been done by someone else then uh we someone who had an interest in how we felt about a particular issue uh if it had been produced by producers um, who had edited the film in some way, I think we would have been less likely to receive it as the truth, right? We've come to, we've come to, to sort of regard, um, uh, uh, regard uh, uh, anything that comes into our, our eyesight now with uh, some level of suspicion. And um, I think that the fact that, that, um, that, Darnella Frazier, that was her name, um, uh, was not uh, someone who was who had set out that morning to 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 uh, produce something that would change our minds about something. It makes it feel all the more believable. I'm going to read you just a short few sentences from the book itself, um, please, uh, because I think it, it goes right to this point better than I can and I can say um, uh, um, off the top of my tongue here. We are greeted each day by a bombardment of imagery, much of it manipulated and distorted to make us feel certain things and do certain things, like spend unlimited money and believe in implausible conspiracies. But while we've grown increasingly suspicious of the truthfulness of the picture, for the moment at least, 
unedited raw video still has the quality of record and raw video shot by a mere bystander, not a professional, not an activist with an agenda, arriving at the scene by chance and recording a violent injustice committed in her presence is even more believable, more reliable, since our reaction presupposes that there is no pretense or ego, no fashion or framing, no interpretive gaze or willful figure pointing, just the truth. In Darnella Fraser's hands, the video became merely the transfer of what happened then to our eyes now as we opened it from our inbox, watched it on cable television, or glimpsed it from a post found on our cell phones, all of which means that when it comes to the abuse of power, at least as it's rendered in public spaces, you can no longer hide. The camera, some camera, will always be there to remember you. Mm. Powerful. Uh Todd, even with the democratization of technology, um, we're still grappling, it seems to me, with history's conundrum of who's telling the story. And, I, and I'm thinking to the book's references to birth of a nation, but the implications are much broader. Your thoughts, sir? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, we are certainly grappling in our time with who's telling the story. And we can come back to that a little bit later, but you ref referenced the birth of a nation. Um, and uh, for your listeners, um, just to spark their memory of their history books from high school, the birth of a nation is, is the really the first big commanding feature length film in, um, in history. It's uh, was done by DW Griffith um, early part of the 20th century. It was, um, uh, a retelling of the story of the Civil War in some respects. It was actually a drama um, uh, where there is two families, one Northern, one Southern, who um, are both white um, and who have been forced uh, apart by this war done in the, um, and then the distortion of its, its, its uh, result, according to the filmmakers, uh, in Reconstruction. And um, you know, portrays blacks as lazy, corrupt, uh, um, stupid, um, uh, and it portrays the war as having been misunderstood, the Civil War we're talking about, of course, the Civil War is being misunderstood, um, and that the South really had the more uh, noble and principled um, uh, mission, uh, and that the North only won because of the greater numbers and more money um, uh, and, and higher higher uh, level of weaponry um, and that coming to grips with that uh, uh, in the 20th century, retelling the story of the Civil War to think of it that way, that it was the, which is commonly called the myth of the lost cause, um, uh, uh, that the war was not about slavery, but it was about states' rights. It was not about, about uh, racial equality. It was about uh, the, um, the invasion of the of the North into the South, the control of the South by the North, the uh, carpetbaggers eventually afterwards, the placing of, of, of Blacks into um, uh, positions of political power and, uh, uh, and economic power in the years after the Civil War, all seen as a mistake and the writing of the mistake, the correcting of the mistake was what the, the, the movie, The Birth of a Nation was about. So in some ways it was, it was actually an agent to the to uh, Jim Crow and to the to the rise of um, of Jim Crow laws, um, and it continued through the 20th century. And the, the 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 Gone with the Wind is a 
is essentially the, the retelling of the, the story of the Civil War with more sympathy to the plantation owners of the South. So you have this whole this whole world being created and this whole argument being created by by filmmakers, uh, D.W. Griffith, who, who was um, uh, sympathetic to the Southern cause, whose father had fought in the Civil War. And um, uh, uh, the, the telling of that story by Griffith, who utilized the, some of the fiction writing of the time from white supremacist writers to, as the basis for his film, that becomes a narrative that makes its way through the 20th century and then rises up the, the story of, of Robert E. Lee and ends up driving the, the campaigns for the Ku Klux Klan. In fact, in the opening um, of the movie, D.W. this movie, The Birth of a Nation, uh, ads for that appear in the newspaper in Atlanta next to ads recruiting for the Ku Klux Klan. So you have the story being told differently by different people, yes, but you know it's like um, uh, uh, the um, the 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 uh, prevailing uh, point of view gets taken over by the South, and um, and and we see sympathy for the South emerging in large part because of the power of film and the power of the filmmakers. It's important to note that that uh, Monroe Trotter, a, a, a black. Um, activist in the uh, around the, the same time and and wb du bois both had worked hard to try to get backing to tell a counter story you know to come back against dw griffith and tell a different completely different story but they didn't have the capital they didn't have the 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 either the financial capital nor the cultural capital by which to to fund and promote a different telling of the story that story um was in the hands of uh, Hollywood. It was also, by the way, a, an incredibly powerful film for its time, and it was one of the great achievements in filmmaking, the first great achievement in filmmaking, you could argue. Um, and, and few people were, could deny it. It reminds me of the reaction that people had uh, in the 1930s to the work of uh, Lenny Riefenstahl, who was a, a filmmaker of the Nazi era and sympathetic to, to Hitler. Um, the films are absolutely stunning, um, but they promote a dark ideology. Todd, could we draw a line from Woodrow Wilson after the screening of Birth of a Nation at the White House saying it's like writing history with lightning and Donald Trump's words after Charlottesville when he said very fine people on both sides as reflecting power's ability to justify a particular narrative? Yes, I think we could. Um, and along the way, I, I, I think... Um, I think we would we could pick up on Strom Thurmond, and um, uh, we could pick up on the naming of of monuments and streets and squares for Confederate leaders. All which happened in the late 1940s, early 1950s, um, uh, as a uh, a reaction to to Brown versus the Board of Education and the um, the uh, uh, integration of the armed forces and Jackie Robinson and all that was happening in terms of of our our racial reckoning in the in the post war era. Um, you could you could draw the line right through um, the civil rights movement of the early 1960s and our, what we mentioned before about Birmingham, um, Bull Connor, the, the police chief. And um, you could draw it right through George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door, you know, less dramatics. Um, um, you know, uh, you could uh, in, in include the um, uh, the. Uh, uh, the reaction to affirmative action in the uh, in the 1970s, you could, in other words, it 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 the, the story of race in America um, is one that um, gets told or can be told 
um, through the visual and communications media of the time. And it, it, it is, um, yes, I think we can take the, the line from Woodrow Wilson, and you're referencing the fact that The Birth of a Nation was the first film that was actually uh, screened at the White House. And, and now, we, as you know, we have come to understand or come to reckon with uh, uh, Wilson's own racist impulses. Um, so much so that they're considering taking his name off of the buildings at Princeton University. But, but um, uh, back in, in, in the day, um, it was, uh, he greeted it with uh, enthusiasm, greeted the film, The Birth of a Nation with enthusiasm and said, my only regret is that it's all so true, uh, straight through to um, uh, uh, Donald Trump and, and saying there are uh, good people on both sides in Charlottesville. You know, it's interesting, I, 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 and with your love of history, I think you'll appreciate this, Byron, that and we mentioned it in the, in the book. Um, on the night before the Nazi, neo-Nazi rally in, um, in Charlottesville that uh, elicited that comment from Donald Trump, the, uh, and they were all arriving there in Charlottesville in order to protest the uh, decision there to uh, rename um, uh, two parks, one uh, that had been named for Robert E. Lee, another one for Stonewall Jackson, the two, two important generals of the Confederacy. Um, and when they arrived there on the Friday, I believe, before the Saturday rally, they, they have an impromptu march to the campus of the University of Virginia, where they go to the statue of Thomas Jefferson. And as they get there, students from the University of Virginia, hearing that they were coming, go to the statue and they form a ring around the statue, holding each other's arms, in other words, to protect it. And what a commanding image that is. Thomas Jefferson, who was uh, the author of All Men Are Created Equal, um, who has a commanding position as the promoter of individual liberty, and yet who owned slaves himself and fathered children with Sally Hemings, one of his slaves. He's advanced 200 some years later and there, there his statue is being protected by students who see one Jefferson and, by, and approached by uh, neo-Nazis who see another Jefferson. Anyone who says that history doesn't get played out in the present needs to consider that image. <laughs> you know, we, we have a number of examples of the democratization of technology, this, this situation in particular. Um, the murder of George Floyd appeared to reflect a sea change. But was it a sea change? I mean, I, uh, many would argue that the 2020 death of Breonna Taylor still languishes in the bowels of absurdity. So unless we have some form of democratization if we have some form of democratization of technology, are we destined to maintain what I would consider my words an inadequate status quo? Because there's, there's still lots to do. Well, there's tremendous amount to do. And, and uh, having the technology and even seeing the video, I mean, I live uh, 11 miles from Sandy Hook. Um, uh, just, you know, these stories that happen as, as, as clear as they may appear to us, um, the reaction to them um, uh, doesn't necessarily follow the path of the outrage. And uh, you know, I noted there's a there's a county in in Virginia that is reconsidering renaming 
some of their uh, schools and streets for Confederate generals. Um, so uh, we're not out of the, we we didn't have a you know the nation didn't have a complete and total um, moment of uh, of reformation here just because the George Floyd video was out there um, any more than it had one regarding the use of guns after Sandy Hook. It takes um, you know we I think the First Amendment's great genius is that it 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 forces upon society a robust public conversation. And if we are to achieve reform, that reform requires not just posting a video and then uh, walking away from it, but continuing to be part of the conversation to force force the kinds of reforms and ultimately the kind of transformative moment that I think James Baldwin felt we needed to we needed to arrive at. You know, Baldwin was was somewhat dismissive of of, of Martin Luther King and as as Malcolm X was, and um, on the notion that you know uh, uh, marching for small reforms uh, um, um, uh, was was actually um, uh, uh, not only not enough, but was actually serving to sort of placate the. The, the the forces of of um of rebellion uh, uh when um when what really needed to happen was something much more transformative and, and and what baldwin was arguing was that you know we needed to recognize acknowledge um uh the things that were done in the nation's name and it's not a matter of of shaming people this there were wrongs committed if we don't we can't advance until we acknowledge the wrongs and this was Baldwin's point of view, and I think it it, it goes to the point that a video, uh, as powerful as this, an extremely powerful, the use of technology in this way that has been transformative for the for the uh, uh, gathering of, of of people and promote and the promotion of a, the cause of of, of recognizing um, the lives that have been destroyed by white supremacy and violence and all that. Um, that's not enough. The public conversation has to continue. It's got to be. It has to. Be, has to. It's, it's not enough to post it and then walk away. Uh, you mentioned James Baldwin. Talk about. Um, I felt Baldwin's aura just hovered over this text and influence. It talk talk about that influence, if you would, of James Baldwin. Yeah, yeah. So um, Baldwin, um, if your listeners, I'm sure know, uh, was one of the great writers of the 20th century. Um, uh, uh, lived um, uh, really wrote from I'd say the late 1940s to the early 1980s. Died shortly thereafter. Um, was uh, a, a really gifted writer. Um, his books are are some of the greatest writing uh, uh, in in American literary history. Baldwin's last book was a book about the Atlanta child murders of the first part of the, of the early 1980s, um, and he called it the evidence of things not seen, and um, uh, our book, therefore, is called "Seen and Unseen." It's both, and it has a double meaning. It's got a meaning about about the um, uh, the, the fact that there are people whose lives have been spent unseen, marginal, marginalized people whose lives have been unseen for um, most of American history, who are now being seen. But it's also about the subcontext, the themes that are the the, the uh, motivations that are not seen um, that continue to to uh, 
uh, inform our lives. You know, I'm just looking at it for the uh, dedication here, not dedication, the um, inscription, um, um, which is uh, from Baldwin, which says, love forces at last this humility. You cannot love if you cannot be loved. You cannot see if you cannot be seen. And um, uh, Baldwin had this very wonderful gift of being able to match up opposites and make them more powerful. Uh, we, we write about how Baldwin was, has been kind of revived in, in, in the public arena, uh, in part by social media. He's, we refer to him as a social media influencer. Um, and uh, uh, the, um, uh, if you go to, to uh, Twitter and, and, and um, Instagram and, and Facebook, you'll find Baldwin quoted repeatedly. And it's partly because he, he, you know, he comes out of the church. Uh, he was, it was first profession that he wanted for himself was to be a, a preacher. I believe he was the son. His stepfather was a, was the preacher. Um, he uh, has a, had a, there's a kind of oratorical quality to his prose. Uh, and it, it, it um, tends to uh, reduce very nicely to, uh, to tweets. Um, it also has this interesting, um, role as as sort of the raw material for the pulling apart and stretching and changing the meaning of something that happens on Twitter. Um, we um, we um, uh, look at it and think, well, maybe it's not really Baldwin if the quote doesn't match what he actually wrote. But sometimes we see this interesting transformation happening on social media where an idea is put out a quote is put out, some kind of oratorical expression is put out, and then in response to it, people begin to tease out other meanings, change the meaning, uh, pull it like taffy, as we say in the book, to, to take on even larger purposes. Um, and I, it's our belief that, that Baldwin would have loved that. He would have seen that as inventive and creative and sort of like a again it's sort of almost like the first amendment playing itself out in literary prose right because we're building something together and the conversation takes his expression and adds to it and then it comes back and then he adds to it backwards and we see a growth out of that okay i want to throw out a quote that i was unaware until i read your text and i'd like to have you comment on the circumstances and its significance you about to lose your job <laughs> yeah um you can search this up on google uh uh both for its entertainment value and for for its profundity um a uh, Janiqua Charles was a woman who was um, at a strip club and um, she left her purse in the strip club and she goes back to try to get into the club and the security guard stops her and she is um, outraged and uh, begins to and he and he, he he's watching her as this is all happening preventing her from getting back into the club and she starts to harass him and starts to sing this kind of, oh, you know, chant, I guess you'd call it. Um, you about to lose your job. You're about to lose your job uh, because you're arresting me for nothing. And, uh, or detaining me for nothing, I think it may have been. Um, the, you know, sometimes you can find the most symbolic sort of poetic things happening in the most peculiar places. 
And the fact that that um, Janiqua Charles uh, denied access to go back to get her purse uh, seized upon the that those phrases to sort of out the security guard shows us that that power of surveillance that we have talked about with respect to social media was at work even in this parking lot encounter. Um, and uh, what she was saying was, you know, that there's people around with cell phone cameras and they're going to see you and they're going to record you. And then in recording you, we're going to get you fired because of what you're doing right now. And it means what, like I said before, uh, when I read that quoted passage about Janique, or, I mean about uh, uh, Darnella Frazier, that the plethora of cameras in every location now means that uh, um, we are being watched. And more importantly, the state is being watched in ways that the surveillance, which was once only a tool of the state, now has been democratized itself and is being used back on the state. So we found it a particularly sort of interesting anecdote. We use it as the, at the opening to chapter two, because of course, I'm sure you could name off five or six instances of what we're talking about right now. Think about the, um, the, uh, the, the outing of that, that uh, the, the Karen, as she was called in Central Park, where uh, a fellow with the bird watcher, a bird watcher. Yes. And, 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 and this woman, um, was there with her dog and dogs were not allowed in the, that part of the park. And the bird watcher says, well, I, you know, I would you please leave with your dog because you're not allowed here. And she gets outraged and calls the police and says, there's a black man threatening me. And um, he's recording all that on his cell phone. And because of that, she was outed for her behavior. She turned out to be, I believe, an investment banker who lost her job. Um, and I'm sure she's not the only one, um, who by virtue of, of that kind of surveillance has been, um, uh, had her behavior policed, but not by the police themselves, but by the general public. And that's sort of that, another example of that democratization of the technology. In referencing Thomas Jefferson, who we, we talked about earlier, uh, and the notes on the state of Virginia, you wrote, quote, we prefer our Jefferson to be the one we craft, not the one who was. I found the quote in many ways emblematic uh, of so much of what you critique in the text, um, because you, couldn't you, you could very easily have written, we prefer the America we craft, not the one that is. And I'd like to have you say more about that, if you would. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, uh, look, I mean, there are there are um, dilemmas that we're all going to face, right? With this democratization of technology, it gives us tools that are very powerful, and then because they're very powerful, they can be abused, right? Um, if if we end up having three hundred million different Americas because um, we prefer the America we compose rather than the one that is real, um, then we could face that as a kind of dilemma for the few. How do we unite a country around people who are so ardently um, 
separate and individual and expressing their own peculiar um, uh, vision of things. Um, I, you and I know that Jefferson has always been somebody that we we try to craft and understand and 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 choose the things we like about him and, and reject the things we do not. Um, uh, we, we we do the same thing with many historical figures. And in fact, one of the other themes of this book, as it gets into the story of the renaming of statues and streets and monuments, is that there is something anti-democratic about the, the heroic um, uh, treatment of, of our, of our uh, leaders. Um, you know, I wrote a book, as you well know, about Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation, which was really looking at Lincoln as a, not the great emancipator, but someone who, who doubted himself, who wasn't sure about, about, um, about his approach to ending slavery, that who, who uh, the writing of the Emancipation Proclamation was a secret thing that he did um, uh, in part in secret because he wasn't sure he was actually ever going to issue it. And Frederick Douglass on the on, on the on New Year's Eve um, uh, before in 1862, leading into 1863, doesn't actually still doesn't believe that Lincoln's going to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, he, but Lincoln was a human being. So was Jefferson. So was Frederick Douglass. So was Du Bois. So was Malcolm X. Um, when we name places after people, um, we raise them up both literally, I mean, the form of statues right on pedestals, we raise them up from the rest of us as, as uh, deserving of glory and, um, and in some cases, worship. And there's something anti-democratic about that. Um, I think we have to, as my, my brother said to me the other day, maybe we should all just go back to naming high schools, North Central High School, like the one that I attended and that he attended, rather than, um, you know, um, Jefferson High School or uh, or Malcolm X High School, for that matter, you know, it's better for us all to 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 recognize that heroism. Um, uh, we can we can we can admire heroic acts, but human beings are human beings and they're flawed. Sometimes they're cruel. Sometimes they're racist. Sometimes they are um, uh, um, mean spirited. Sometimes they uh, uh, work for for progress and sometimes they work to retard progress. Um, and the, the, uh, raising up of people on pedestals like, has its own dangerous element. You know, finally reading scene unseen, um, one can't help but recall Mark Twain's quote, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Mm. Your thoughts. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting, uh, uh quote. Uh, for multiple reasons, and um, uh, certainly our history rhymes. We still see some of the same um, themes in our own time that were there when the birth of a nation was issued. Um, we still see the Civil War uh, being fought out um, virtually, or you know, um, uh, in our in our public conversation. Uh, I think of that wonderful book by Tony Horowitz, "Confederates in the Attic," which is. Uh, um, uh, you know, the, the, he traveled around the South to various landmark places and saw the way that this, the Confederacy was still so much alive. It's about 20 years ago, but here we are seeing it uh, more in our own time. 
Um, I also think it's an interesting um, quote because of what it says about progress or a lack of progress. We all go out each day, it seems to me, on armed with the notion that we can uh, get things can be better. I mean, more, you know, Martin Luther King said the the the, the um, arc of the moral universe. Yes, uh, bends towards yeah. justice, um, and that is kind of a hallmark of the American idea, right? That things are getting better um, and uh, that we are progressing. We may take uh, two steps forward and then one step back, but we are we are on a trajectory that goes towards a better life. Um, I think some people have come to doubt that fairly recently, um, doubt even the scientific component of that, which for most of American history was um, uh, unchallengeable, right? I mean, the, the power of antibiotics, the power, power of surgery, uh, surgical medicine, and, and the, um, uh, the germ theory of disease, which um, was uh, discovered by Albert Holmes Sr. Um, these are things that, that we took for granted, that progress, that things were going to get better, that we as a society would get better. Um, and and it, it's it, it, the, the, um, one of the implicit or questions in Twain's remark that theme, um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, would suggest that we aren't progressing, right? That it, that it, um, that that we are continuing to be sort of dealing with the same bugaboos that we've dealt with for all of American history, perhaps all of human history. I I, I would like to believe not so. I would like to believe, and I, I do believe, I get up every day and I have two um, adult sons whom I uh, raised with this, with this notion that, uh, that life is good, uh, that there are forces for good in the world and that um, uh, there are forces for evil and that we, it is part of our, 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 um, our, our, our job as, as, as citizens of the universe and of this nation, uh, each day to commit ourselves for good. And, um, that can be in small ways and it can be big ways, but that we, uh, I, I rail against the kind of cynicism that I'm seeing so, so much around the country. I, and I would bring it back to the, to the story we tell in this book. I think that the last chapter is called is called another chance, and I think that that's a that, that's there because both Mark Lamont Hill and I believe that um, the, the future is 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 not uh, a dark. It is it has it has a great chance for great progress. Um, that the racial reckoning, in large part, has been a good thing. That um, it has unleashed counter forces uh, that we must deal with each day, and that the public conversations I alluded to before needs to be re-energized at every at every opportunity but i i tend to believe that um uh the moral arc of the universe does bend towards justice well todd brewster it has been an honor to once again be in conversation with you i want to congratulate you and and mark hill on this powerful text the book is seen and unseen technology social media and the fight for racial justice co-authored by Mark Lamont Hill and Todd Brewster, and Todd has been our guest. Thank you, my friend, for once again joining us on The Public Morality. Much appreciated. It's, it's my honor, Byron. I always love coming on your show, and, and you have such wonderful questions, and I, I feel like um, 
uh, we have a we have a wonderful rapport that that I hope comes through on the on the airwaves. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.